Well, um, thanks for um, joining us at our Zooming In on Christ College uh, online event today, tonight. Uh, my na name is Nate and I'm a final year student here at Christ College uh, and I'll be guiding us through the event tonight. Um, at Christ College, our vision is to see growth in Christ-centered leadership for God's church in God's world. Uh, we have a whole lot of convictions as a college that shape how we live out this vision. And this semester, we're running a series of events, uh, taking a closer look at these convictions. Tonight, we're going to zoom in on some of our theological convictions with a Q&A um, session with uh, John McLean, uh, our vice principal here at Christ College uh, and lecturer in systematic theology. In a moment, I'll be asking John a few questions uh, to get the ball rolling, but there'll be a chance later on uh, in the evening for you to ask your own questions. Um, either about things that you've heard tonight, uh, other theological issues, or uh, other questions about the college in general that you'd like to ask us. Um, and if you'd like to ask a question, then just uh, type that question in our chat box, and we'll uh, figure out our, or we'll do our best in uh, answering them as we uh, go along. Uh, before we start our night together, um, why don't we pray? Please join with me in prayer. Um, our Father, we uh, thank you that we can have this evening to gather uh, on Zoom uh, to think about uh, theological convictions. Uh, Lord, we pray that as we think through these things that um, you would uh, help us to uh, delight in you um, as, we, uh, as we reflect and uh, as we consider uh, our own theological convictions. Uh, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, why don't we start off with a, a get to know you, um, okay. John. <laughs> so John, tell us, um, why uh, do you like teaching theology and um, what are some of your goals in teaching theology? Right, so why do I like teaching theology? Yep. So obviously the first answer is because of the students. Okay, right. <laughs> oh, great. Um, <laughs> uh, but I really do mean that. Um, so I get to teach students who really think that what they're studying matters. It's not just some sort of academic exercise. Um, it's not just theoretical. It's what they... It, it, they're thinking about the God who they... who saved them, who they want to serve, who they want to grow in knowing him and loving him. Uh, they've made a bit of a sacrifice to do that. They've put their lives on hold somehow or other, or um, they're investing time and effort, and they want to take what they're learning and use that to serve God and serve his people in the world. So... Um, that is a wonderful bunch of students to teach. <laughs> You'll be glad to know. <laughs> and then we get to talk about the best, really the best subject that you could think about. Uh, humans are made to know God and love him. And, you know, we're called to love God with all our heart and all our mind, um, as well as in action. And so thinking about God and who he is and his ways in the world, digging into his word, uh, thinking about what it means to follow him and to live for him uh, and to keep seeing the gospel and seeing the gospel from all different angles as we think about, uh, think about theology. Uh, so it's a great bunch of students and um, the, the best material to think about. So, yeah. I, so a few years ago, um, someone asked me a similar question about my, my job and, and I did say, it's such a great job, I'm not sure why I get paid to do it. <laughs> And they said, yeah, we're not sure why you get paid to do it yeah. either. But anyway. oh, great. Yeah, well, I'm thankful that um, you care for us students and that we're part of your goals as well. Um, uh, well, let's talk about um, the relevance of theology. 
what even is theology? Okay. Um, you know, why is it important? So God talk, theologos, words about God, talk about God. So it's, it's thinking about God, it's answering the, the big question of what should Christians believe and therefore how should we live today as Christians. Um, so to, to explain it a bit more, it's thinking from Scripture, uh, so, so normed by Scripture, Scripture as the, the rule and, the, and God's revelation, but thinking out from Scripture about who God is and about his ways in the world, what he's done. So it's focused on Christ, knowing God in Christ, and focused on, uh, led by the Spirit. Um, building then on the great tradition of the church, building on the, um, the accumulated wisdom over the, over the centuries, to try and help the church by thinking about the questions of today, whether they're the questions that come from outside the church or inside the church. Uh, so that's a pretty big brief. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. But, you know, so starting from Scripture, uh, helped by the tradition of the church, mm. thinking about God and his ways in order to think about what we should say and do mm. today. Okay. Yeah. Well, how about um, some specific questions related to some of our theological convictions here at Christ College? Yep. Um, let's start with an easy one. Okay. <laughs> John, tell us about the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay. <laughs> Why right. does it matter? Why don't we just start from... Yeah, yeah well, that, this is the... I mean, this is the, the pinnacle of theology, yeah. isn't it, to think about the Trinity. Yeah. And why does the Trinity matter? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I guess people often feel like the doctrine of the Trinity just seems esoteric and a, a kind of added extra that no one really knows what it means. Um, but I want to say it's way more important than that. So, so to begin with, it's the way in which God's revealed himself and named himself. Um, God is the Father, Son and Spirit, one God in three persons. Um, and so if we want to be able to call on God and speak to him and speak about him, then we need to know what his name is. And we could say his name is Yahweh or the Lord in the Old Testament. But that's filled out in the New Testament as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So first of all, it's just a way of knowing who God is, specifying his identity. But, but it's also uh, really a summary of the gospel because the doctrine of the Trinity is all about the fact that it's God who saves us. Um, it's God the Father who sent God the Son. He doesn't send somebody else a, a, a stand-in. He, he himself, God himself, comes to reveal himself and to save us in the incarnation. And then God himself, God the Spirit, is present with us and in us, binding, him, binding us to himself. Mm. Uh, and so we're not dealing with God at a distance, but God right up close and personal as he saves us. Um, and so you know, those Trinitarian, almost incidentally Trinitarian passages in the New Testament reveal that. So, for instance, uh, Ephesians 2, where Paul says, through him, that is through Christ, you come to the Father by the Spirit. You approach the Father by the Spirit. There's the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, or, or 1 Peter uh, opens, uh, you've been you know, foreknown and predestined by the Father, um, sanctified through the Spirit for obedience to the Son and washing by his blood. 
And so the pattern of salvation is a Trinitarian pattern. And if you lose the doctrine of the Trinity, you lose the gospel. Um, and, and you see that in something like the Jehovah's Witnesses, who denied Jesus is fully God, and therefore can't really believe that Jesus is fully the Saviour. Uh, so it, it's intricately bound into the gospel, and really, that's a really important thing to see. And I think that's, in one way, the most important thing to see about the Trinity. But it also tells us that God is not a lonely monad. It's not that he made the world um, to satisfy some craving he had for relationship, but just the opposite, that he, he made us and he made the world and he saves us out of the fullness of his love. Um, and and so, so it's really important there as well. Um, so I know you didn't ask me for a book, but... Um, the book by Fred Sanders called The Deep Things of God mm. I think really sets this out mm. these kind of ideas out in a yeah. beautiful way yeah. 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 Um, well how about a couple more questions related to our theological convictions specifically here at Christ College and then we'll open it up to the zombie verse so. <laughs> okay. here's one that's related particularly to our times um, the problem of evil um, yep. so um, so we did say we we're going to do the big questions of theology, yeah, didn't yeah, we? we? So yeah. Trinity, the problem of yeah, evil. That's right, yep. all, okay. all, all the big questions. So the pandemic, um, you know, is God behind evils like the pandemic? How, how can we believe in a God like that? Okay. So while the doctrine of the apex or the pinnacle of Christian theology, uh, the problem of evil and the question of the relationship of God and suffering and evil, I think is the hardest question for the Christian faith. Because it comes internally. It's not a question that the outsider asks. It's our question. Um, God is good and loving. Um, uh, he, but he's also the reality that determines all other reality. Uh, he's the one who does stand behind and is present within everything that happens. And the world has all sorts of evils. And, you know, I mean, the pandemic is one very prominent example of, of, at present, but we can list out a lot. And so we really then wonder, well, how, do, how does that fit together? Um, and, and so the first thing I'd want to say when I was trying to answer that question with someone or trying to talk to someone about that is to say, you've got to decide what your standard's going to be. And if your if you're answer if you're only going to accept an answer that you can understand, then what you're effectively doing is saying, God really has to be about my scale. Um, because I have to be able to understand the answer. And I think on this one, we, ha we have to realise we don't have an answer that we can fully understand. And we're not in a position to grasp the, everything about God and how he works in the world. And certainly we're not in a position to assess him. So God is behind you know, everything that happens in some mysterious way. But uh, the Bible doesn't give us a static picture of the world. It doesn't say, well, this is the way the world is and that's it. The Bible tells us there's a story about the world. And the world was made one way. It was made good. Things have gone wrong. Um, because of human actions. And so the world that we look at now is not the world the way it should be. It's not the way God meant it to be. Uh, and it's not the way that God's 
God's not happy to leave it the way it is. He is going to, he is at work to change it. Um, So the question is not as simple as, how could God let the world be like this? The question has got to be, how did the world come to be like this? And there's a human contribution there. And then we think about how committed God is to changing the world, to redeeming it and restoring it and uh, clearing it of the curse of evil. Uh, So committed that he himself, God the Son, came and took up our situation, lived with our problem and in our predicament, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserved, rose again. So we're back to the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, God himself got involved in bringing the solution. Uh, He's at work redeeming and restoring the world. So the world is not the way it should be. That's not the way it will be. Um, And there is a God who is committed to redeeming it and who hates evil and suffering. Now, how does that all fit together? I don't know. Um, It's not a nice, neat, logical answer. But in lots of ways, it's better than a logical answer. Um, It's an answer that offers hope, that says we can't really explain why God allows these things to happen and how he's part of things that at the same time he, he, he despises and is seeking to change and, and is committed to changing. Um, but I'll tell you what, that's a lot better than thinking that he's not involved and we're kind of off by ourselves and we've just got to sort it out by ourselves because you know, even the pandemic, which is a relatively little problem compared to you know, the whole list of problems we could come up with, we, we don't sort it out by ourselves. Mm. And something, a question that's a follow-up question that's probably a bit related to that, that some of us might be coupling with, especially that we're meeting online as churches. Um, you know, can I be a Christian and not go to church? Okay, so we're getting down into a bit more yep. um, sort of day-to-day questions yeah. now. <laughs> um, so my short answer is no, actually. Hmm. You can't be a Christian and not go to church. Now, of course there's people who aren't able to go to church for all sorts of reasons. Um, living in as um, Christians in, under severe persecution, perhaps. Uh, people who are very sick and locked in their homes. And lots of us who haven't been able to go to church. Although I think there's another question that uh, maybe we won't, think it, we won't have to tackle tonight. But, I mean, I'd want to say that meeting on Zoom, for instance, or online, is still meeting at church. It's not ideal, but it is having a community and and meeting together, but not um, ideally. Um, But of course you meet people who say, oh, I don't have to go to church at all uh, in order to be a Christian. I remember years ago people using the illustration, you don't have to, sorry, uh, living in a garage doesn't make you a car, right? So, you know, just because you go to church doesn't mean you're a Christian. Of course that's true. Um, It's not automatic that just because you're a at church, you, you have a genuine faith. But I think people then sometimes flip that round and say, so that means I don't even have to be in a garage to be a car, which is entirely true. But being a Christian is far more like being a part of a family than being a car. And sure, I mean, you could say I'm a part of a family, but if you never interact with that family, 
If you never go to any Christmas events or birthday events, you never are in touch with your brothers and sisters and, and your parents, what, is, what does it mean to be part of that family? It, there's no substance to it. Um, and God's intention is to save people together. That's always what he's done. You know, when he, in the Old Testament, he saves Israel as a people. They're to live as a community. He sets them up as a nation. In the New Testament, he's saving a people. So one of the verses I think is really helpful on this is Titus 2, which talks about um, you know, God's purpose was to redeem a people of his very own, eager to do what is good. Um, and the people that God redeems are not just a kind of abstract idea. He actually calls us to meet together. The, the Spirit draws us together to gather and to meet, to love one another and to express that love to each other. And of course the end goal is that we'll be gathered in God's presence, worshipping him in the new creation. So if that's God's purpose, that's God's pattern now, that's God's promise... Um, it's fundamentally corporate. Mm. Um, and, and so to think that you could live that, you, you could claim the identity of being in Christ but not be with God's people, um, it, you know, is to misunderstand who you are mm. and certainly to rob yourself of um, you know, not, just a, not just a spiritual blessing but what God considers a spiritual necessity. Mm. So I guess if someone asks the question, well, do I have to go to church to be a Christian? I, that's the kind of thing I'd want to say. I'd want to ask, well, why are you asking the question? Exactly, yeah. What, what, why are you asking that question? And, and something seems to have... I mean, maybe it's a practical thing. You know, I'm just really sick at present and I can't go to church. Um, that doesn't take you away from Christ or take you away from your unity with God's people and hopefully they express their love to you. Um, but if it's thinking, oh, I think I'll just pull out, then um, you've fundamentally misunderstood what God's on about. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, going to church doesn't necessarily mean you're going somewhere with a building and part of a denomination. And you know, churches come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. But God's purpose is that we'll be part of His people. Yeah. So uh, thinking about, um, well, we're going to change track, track of it, but it's related as well. Thinking about God's uh, church as God's family, God's people, something that's particularly um, relevant for Presbyterians and some people that might have this question coming to this college in the future. Yep. Um, why, why do we baptise children? Okay, why do we baptise children? Um, as you said, it is related to that question. It's because God saves people together. Um, and he saves people. He saves children. Children are part of God's people and part of God's family. That was true in the Old Testament, of course. Um, the children were part of the people of God and signified by, assigned by the, by the sign of circumcision for, for boys. Um, and it's true in the New Testament. So I, I think one of the key texts in the New Testament about infant baptism actually doesn't mention baptism at all. It's uh, the beginning of Ephesians 6, which tells children to obey their parents in the Lord. And it's interesting that, you know, in the Lord. So here's Paul writing to the children who are in the, in the congregation. 
and telling them that they are in the Lord and their obedience is to be in the Lord. Um, and in the New Testament, uh, in the book of Acts, uh, people are being baptised and whole households mm. are being baptised, which almost always would have included children. And more, more puzzling for us, probably the servants as well. Mm. And, and the other members of the household all would be baptised together. Uh, because it's actually the way God works. God works through the structures he's made. He works through these household family structures. And so it's natural to grow up in faith. Um, so we don't say to our kids, I don't think we should say to our kids, and I hope we don't, we don't say to them as they're growing up, look, one day um, you could pray the Lord's Prayer and call God Father. One day when you become a Christian, we, we teach our kids to pray the Lord's Prayer. Or we say to them when they've had a fight with their, with their brother or sister, you need to forgive them because God forgives you. We don't say, oh, one day God will forgive you when you, when, when you grow up and you make a profession of faith. We say, God forgives you because of Jesus. You should forgive your brother or sister. And when Christian parents do that, I think they're exactly right. That's, that's the right instinct. So baptism is a sign of those realities. Um, it's a sign of God's grace. And I think this is one of the places where uh, infant Baptists or covenant Baptists, Presbyterian, Anglicans, those sort of people, and credo Baptists do have a different view. I, I don't think the New Testament presents baptism as primarily a sign of our response to God. It's primarily a sign of God's grace towards us, including us in Christ, washing us clean of sin, giving us new life. And of course, that embraces our response to God and brings us, it includes our response, but it's not primarily a sign of our response. Um, so of course it's not an infallible sign, just like baptising an adult is not an infallible sign that that person has faith. Um, we have to, anyone who's baptised needs to be taught and discipled. Um, and as they go on in the Lord, whether they start from being a, infant growing up or a teenager who's baptised, an adult who's baptised, as they go on in the Lord, they grow in assurance, we grow in assurance mm -hmm. that they are one of the Lord's people. Yeah. So there's the... the, the, the there you go. That would yeah. be my answer about why do we baptise yeah, babies. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, John. So you, we've talked about these um, theological convictions that uh, we have. Um, is theology... Just for lecturers of theology, or <laughs> for students coming to a theological college, like who is theology for? Who's it for? Um, you know, it's it's ultimately for everybody. Uh, every single person is a theologian, right? Either they know and acknowledge the true and living God, or they somehow deny Him. But that's that itself is a theological statement. And even if they don't recognise that's what they're doing. Uh, we all live on fundamentally theological grounds. Um, but, but of course, you know, theology is particularly something that Christians will do as we grow in our knowledge of God, we're thinking about God, and I think every Christian has the responsibility, as I said before, to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our mind. Um, and so to think carefully about what we believe and try and understand it as well as we can. Um, and obviously it's particularly important for 
people who are teaching God's word. Uh, there's a, a book um, written quite a few years ago now called The Cruelty of Heresy. And it makes the point that you know, heresy, false teaching, the, the, the really major false teachings in church history have terrible spiritual impact on people. Um, they, they ruin people's lives spiritually. And so if people are going to be responsible for teaching God's word and, te- and directing the life of the church, they particularly need to think carefully about what they believe and how they're going to teach it. Uh, but they're doing that for the sake of the church. Uh, and so it's certainly not just a kind of professional exercise. Yeah, okay. And so with that, as we um, think about theology, or we're thinking about it tonight, uh, how about some questions from the floor? Uh, Sammy's got four questions. And she sent them to me. So I will open up these questions. Okay, and I and, can um, pass the water while... That's right. I'll, I'll, I'll pick a couple then. <laughs> see if you... Well, you probably have answers to them, but... Uh, well, we'll see. Alright, so um, we might start off with just the first one that I've gotten. Uh, so this is one from, uh, should I say the names, Sammy? <laughs> no, let's not say the names. Okay. <laughs> um, what does the Bible say about what it means to be human? Uh, and particularly, how does this speak to some of the current uh, big topics like gender identity, Black Lives Matter? Wow, okay. Yeah, that's a big question. Big question, fantastic question. Uh, and. So let me preface my answer by saying I think this is the big, in one sense, new question of Mm. our age. So if you look back through the history of theology, let me just give you a quick tour. Um, You know, so who who was Jesus and who was God were the big questions of the first, say, four centuries. Um, The Trinitarian debates, the Christological debates... Um, and then it's certainly when you get to the Reformation questions about the doctrine of the, the authority of scripture justification by faith the, the nature of the church were some of the big questions they had to think about in the last um, like in the 19th century I think the inspiration and inerrancy of scripture were probably one of the big, the big questions and, and as well as some issues about mission in the 20th century, I guess science mm. and how does theology, how do Christian faith relate to science was a big question. Mm. Now I think the big questions are around how do we understand humanity? What does it mean to be human? Um, so, what, so the question was, what does the Bible say about being human? Mm. Uh, I, I guess the, the term we often use to, as the kind of carrier for this discussion is the idea of the image of God. Um, now, I think in some ways we sometimes try and get that phrase to do a, more work than it can because it's not used all that often in Scripture. But if we use that as a way of um, arranging our thoughts, we could say humans are made in the image of God because we're somewhat like God. And more importantly, we're made for a relationship with God, to know him, to, to obey him, to, to love him, and therefore to reflect something of his character into the world. Um, we're, we're, we're in the image of God because we're put here as representatives of God's rule as well. That's another way in which the, the idea of the image of God gets used. And so I think even there's a, there is something physical about that, that God's 
made us as the physical representations to the rest of creation of his rule. And so we were able to exercise a rule. We've exercised it badly um, by exploiting the world and disobeying God. And so we've, the image of God is corrupted in humanity. Um, so what does that mean for our contemporary issues? I mean, there are lots of ways we could go then. Uh, I think, first of all, to recognise that to be... That the end goal of being human, the purpose, the, the, the telos or goal of being human is to know and love God. Um, it's not to develop our own identity. It, it, it's not to pursue pleasure. Um, it's not to... Uh, turn ourselves into something else. None of those things are out. God's given us a goal and it's first and foremost to, to love him and know him. And that is where we find most satisfaction. Um, and of course we live in a world where people are desperately seeking satisfaction and purpose and direction. And The, the, the idea of the image of God helps to explain that. Uh, or helps to tell us where we really will find our, our purpose and direction. Um, but God's made us male and female. And you know, this is an idea that Christians have assumed all along, but often haven't made terribly explicit. Um, but but I, th- I think the questions about gender and gender fluidity are making us re-examine that. So God has made us male and female. Um, he's made us for heterosexual marriage, uh, if we're going to have a sexual relationship. Um, he's made us able to develop the world and ourselves and so I think there's some scope for doing that, we've done that all along but we need to be very cautious about our propensity for folly and our propensity to make a mess of things and so we need to be very careful about how we change human nature if we want to use that that, that term Uh, so here I'm thinking about the questions about physical and chemical uh, uh, and um, sort of information technology enhancement that's fundamental, that I think, you know, is coming already, is already present and is going to more and more offer opportunities for us to fundamentally change the nature of human existence. Um, And I don't think it's, I don't think we can say it's utterly wrong to change anything because, you know, education changes things and all sorts of Inventions change things. Um, but we are just so capable of making dumb decisions and doing things that have um, unexpected consequences that we need to be extremely cautious about doing those sort of things. Um, so there's a few, there's a few topics. I th- yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, maybe something related to theological convictions in particular. What is meant by evangelical Christianity? Um, and... Um, what were market churches evangelical? How does it differ or overlap with, with the Reformed tradition, the Reformed church? Okay, thank you. So what's the, what's the relationship between being evangelical and being Reformed? Mm. Um, I guess the first thing to say is all of these kind of words, and I'm sure mm. you've heard me say this kind of thing in theological class all the time, people use, or lots of times, perhaps not all the time, but people use these labels, both in the popular Christian world and in the... Um, in theological discussion, sometimes in different ways. And so in the end, you've got to listen to what 
somebody who's using a word, how they use it and, and work out what they mean by it to know how to interact with them and communicate with them. But, I mean, but the word evangelical comes from the word gospel. And in the Reformation era, it was really used to describe people, uh, to describe Protestants, people who were committed to the gospel and, and wanted to preach the, the newly rediscovered gospel. Uh, the, ref, the Reformed movement was, is a movement that grew through the Reformation um, in parts of Germany, Switzerland, Scotland, parts of England, Holland, um, and then is spread around the world. And it's the movement that the Presbyterian Church is part of um, that's committed to the authority of Scripture, committed to the sovereignty of God in, uh, in salvation, um, sees the deep problem of sin and our need for, uh, for redemption from sin and God taking the initiative in order to turn us to himself. Um, Reformed theology normally has a strong commitment to the doctrine of creation and um, the value of creation uh, and the value of vocation, of, of all sorts of tasks that people do, the importance of church, the, the kind of things I was talking about before. Uh, in terms of the question on church. They're, they're, they're all kind of convictions of the reformed movement. And then evangelicalism is probably a word that started to be used again in the 18th and 19th centuries to describe people who were very similar to the reformed, and some of them were reformed, uh, who were committed to the authority of scripture, so it's partly against liberalism. There were movements in theology that were denying the uh, authority of scripture and evangelicals were defending the authority of scripture. Uh, but they were also, I mean, I guess the best word is the, the word Bevington uses to describe conversionistic. They were pre preaching for decision. They were telling people, you need to repent, you need to be converted. Um, and, uh, and so activists wanted to, um, weren't just kind of sitting on their hands and watching things happen, but wanted to send missionaries and be active in society uh, for, to serve Christ. Um, so they're two sets that overlap a lot. And uh, certainly I think in, um, in Australia, often when we talk about being evangelical and when we talk about being reformed, they're very similar, um, but, but probably distinguishable. So you know, an evangelical church you'd expect is going to be committed to the authority of the Bible, is going to preach Christ as the saviour and want to be evangelistic, that is wanting to see people hear about Jesus and, and come to him. Mm. Now, a reformed church should say the same thing. <laughs> um, but, but perhaps we'll have a clearer set of convictions about the role of the church, the depth of sin... Mm the need for God's irresistible grace. Mm. Yeah. So um, I, hope that, I hope that helps yeah. the question. Maybe one more question and then we'll, we'll finish up. Uh, here's an interesting one. Did good theology finish when the ink dried on the Westminster Confession of Faith? <laughs> all modern theology is suspect. <laughs> uh, no. Good theology didn't finish when the ink dried on the Westminster Confession of Faith. Valuable as the Westminster Confession of Faith is, uh, and you know, I, I said earlier about doing theology involves um, a 
you know, learning from the accumulated wisdom of the generations. But, but I also said that theology's got to be about answering the questions of today. And I think those questions about humanity are a good illustration of that. That there are new questions that arise as well as old questions that have to be reconsidered. And as we do that, we learn not radically new things. I don't think theology you know, is going one way and then all of a sudden goes off like this, but it goes deeper and goes more richly and sees connections more fully. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the role, the place of gender in human existence, I think is something that Christians are thinking about more deeply now than they probably ever have. Um, so since there's a book uh, by um, Roberts looking at the doctrine of marriage as being you know, heterosexual marriage. And he's showing how it has always been part of the Christian tradition, but he actually has to dig pretty hard to find, or dig pretty deep to find much discussion of it, historically, because it was just assumed. Mm. But now we have to make it explicit. And you know, I, I think there's a whole lot of areas where, where that's true. So... Uh, I don't think theology has finished mm. at all. Um, there's always new questions and, and even, you know, each, gen each generation has to appropriate the questions for themselves mm. and think about how we'll express our faith and our commitments, our convictions in our time, in a language that makes sense to us and to our world. Mm. All right. Thanks, John. Well, do we have time for another question? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, okay. I'm happy. I'm happy to keep talking. Do you want to, um, do you want to pick a question, John? No, no, you pick a question. Uh, it doesn't seem fair for me, for me to pick the question <laughs> and give the answer. There are. There's quite a few. I'm trying to pick a good one that would be... Okay. Um, one related to um, one of the things we talked about on uh, the Trinity... You touched on the triune nature of God. What's your perspective on the role of the Holy Spirit in modern society and the church? Particularly, this person is asking in the pursuit of spiritual gifts um, and whether they're still relevant today. Okay, yep. Uh, so, so, I, I was just, I, we're doing a I'm doing a lecture tomorrow morning on the Holy Spirit. But um, I'm not sure that what I'm going to say there is particularly connected to this question. Yeah. It, it is in a way. What's the work of the Spirit um, is the work of bringing to completion and perfection what is planned by the Father and enacted by the Son, always in perfect unity with each other. Uh, and so the work of the Spirit is always to make us more like Christ and lead us to, or lead us to faith in Christ and make us more like Christ and enable us to glorify Christ um, and he gives us gifts to do that so I, I don't think there's any reason to be a, um, you know to say that the gifts that are listed in the New Testament are just not relevant for today um, I, I think they are but they, but and in the New Testament and now the spirit uses those gifts to point to Christ and exalt him. Um, not to be the preoccupation, not, not that we should be preoccupied by the gifts. And I mean, that's the, that's the beautiful thing about 
1 Corinthians, which talks about this passage, uh, talks about this issue, doesn't it? And where a lot of our thinking about the gifts comes from. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the unity of the body and the different gifts are given for the good of the body. Then 1 Corinthians 14 talks about, that's where we get speaking in tongues and words of knowledge and that sort of idea. But in between is chapter 13, uh, the, the, the hymn to love or the law of love. Um, and that's how we're to use the gifts, in order to love one another. Um, not to build up our own egos, not to uh, prove that we're super spiritual. In fact, I think one of the points Paul's making you know, quite explicitly at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13 is the level of your giftedness is no indication of the level of your spiritual maturity. Um, it's, it's your love which is an indication of spiritual maturity. And so whatever gifts we have, we're to use to serve others. And I do, I remember um, when, I, when I was a pastor, uh, there was a couple in my congregation who'd come from a Pentecostal background and we were having a discussion one night about 1 Corinthians 14. And, uh, you know, there's that passage where, there's a section where Paul says, if I speak in tongues, I edify myself. And uh, the lady in this couple said, well, I've always been taught, you know, that's a good thing. I, you know, good, look, here's a way to edify yourself. And I said, I don't think that is what Paul's saying there because he's just said in 1 Corinthians 13, we're to use our gifts for other people. And so to edify myself is actually a misuse of the gifts. That's not what we're meant to be doing. Uh, so I, God gives us all sorts of gifts. He's sovereign over the gifts he gives. Um, it's not for us to dictate what he can and can't give. But the question for us is how we're going to use the gifts. Uh, so I'm not a cessationist. <laughs> it, you know, I'm not, I, don't, I don't think that there's any particular gift that we should say doesn't happen anymore. Um, but God will determine from time to time in his wisdom which gifts people in, 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 ch- in various churches need. And we should use them. Our responsibility is to use them. Yeah. One more, another question related to the Trinity. Um, what's a good way to explain when asked how God can appear so different from the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, you know, for example, permitting mass slaughter, including women and children in the Old Testament. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there, there's, there's no doubt there are differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament, of course. I suppose I'd want to question the premise, though, does God really appear that different between the Old Testament and the New Testament? To, so to pick up the question of mass slaughter, um, I mean, the book of Revelation has some pretty horrific descriptions of war as well. Now, the particular problem we're going to have, or the particular issue is going to be that we have some times in the Old Testament where God commands Israel to go to war, to, to reclaim the land. Um, but I think that's, that is, in some ways, God says that he's waiting until the wickedness of the Canaanites has reached its full measure. Uh, and so it is an act of God's judgment on Canaan. Um, and the book of Revelation talks about God's acts of judgment as well. So I guess I want to kind of problematise a bit and say, actually, you've probably got the same set of questions about the God of the New Testament as well. Um, well known that it's Jesus who speaks about 
um, who, who speaks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. Um, so the question of the God who brings judgment to a world that's sinful is a question in both Testaments. Um, and, and so I think we need to go back. I guess I'm, I want to end up answering a different question. <laughs> that is, you know, how do we think about God's judgment? Um, and, and ultimately, I think we have to think about God's judgment and anger as the response of God's holy love to that which stands opposed to him. Um, yeah, so maybe to come back to that question, though, perhaps, perhaps I've gone off on a little bit of a tangent. Um, God's, uh, I mean, the, the big difference between Old Testament and New Testament is the coming of Christ, of course. So there is a fuller revelation of God in Christ than um, in the Old Testament. And so we do see God not differently, but more fully. Um, still got time, Sammy? Um, here's one perhaps relevant today. Um, how do you understand that although there are great theologians around, graduated from theological seminaries, um, those people, but they are not good evangelists. In other words, their own churches aren't growing, and in fact they might be dying. Hmm. Um. Well, I mean, I'm not quite sure who, who you're necessarily thinking of. Um, that, 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 that's fine. Uh, I mean, different people have different gifts, so that would be the first thing I'd say. Um, and so there are some people who maybe, you know, who are particularly gifted as evangelists, obviously, um, and who God has used to really enter into culture and bring lots of people to, to himself... There's other people who keep going just as faithfully, but God doesn't use them in that way. Um, so I, I don't want to jump too quickly to make conclusions about you know, how good people's theology is or how good their ministry practice is on the basis of how, you know, how many people become Christians under their ministry because ultimately that's God's sovereignty. Uh, but, but also to say that being... You know, getting a theology degree is only one element of being well prepared to be the minister of a church. Um, and of course there are people who can pass the exams and can read Greek and Hebrew, etc., etc., but um, perhaps shouldn't be in, perhaps shouldn't be a pastor of a church. Uh, part of the calling of a pastor of a church is to do the work of an evangelist. Uh, so, um, I, you know, I, I don't want to be too quick to dismiss faithful ministry, which God isn't particularly blessing with conversions, because that's God's sovereignty. And we need to recognise that in the West, this is a hard era for evangelism, uh, especially somewhere like Australia. There's a spiritual hardness about our culture at present that makes it really difficult. And there's plenty of people working away very faithfully in hard areas. Um, 
Uh, we're not always good, though, so this is kind of going back and forth, I guess. We're not always good at taking our theology and turning it into contextually appropriate ministry models. Um, and, you know, it's certainly possible to come out of a theological college, think that you've got all the answers, but actually not, uh, not, not, not be ready to, to adapt to the situation you're in. So I, I guess there's lots of, lots of things can be going on. Um, maybe related to that question as well. Um, some, well, I'm not sure about the. Uh, some US um, evangelicals have said that we teach grace too much at the expense of some of our of the spiritual disciplines uh, in Australia. What do you think? Um, uh, yeah, in Australia, yeah. Mm. Uh, so there is a. The, the, I mean, there's two. There's three great doctrines of redemption. I mean, there's work of Christ, but in terms of application, justification, adoption, and sanctification. That is that God sets us right before Him, that He acquits us and accepts us on the basis of Christ's work, that He welcomes us, His children, and blesses us and loves us, and that He changes us. And, you know, I think probably if we've got a fault in Australian reformed evangelical movement is we tend to focus on justification and not say so much about either adoption or sanctification. Um, now, I'm not sure that the answer to talking about sanctification is simply spiritual disciplines, depending on what you mean by spiritual disciplines. But, but yeah, there is, a, there is a risk and uh, a fault that we sometimes fall into that we so emphasise justification that we don't preach and help people to practice and grow in sanctification. Um, yeah, so it probably is a probably is a, a, a uh, something of a reasonable criticism, and um, I certainly think there's a place for talking about spiritual disciplines as long as we carefully put them in the context of grace. So we rec- that we recognise sanctification is a God's good work in us uh, and is a gift to us that we, as it were, step into, into the new humanity God's created for us in Christ. Um, and spiritual disciplines can be a way of helping us to do that, learning to pray well and reflect on scripture. And, uh, yeah. and um, there's one more question that we had. All right. Um, what do you see as the most dangerous trend in theology today? <laughs> um, the most dangerous trend in theology today, if, if any. Oh no, there's plenty. It's just yeah. hard to know. Um, I mean, it partly depends how wide you cast your net in terms of theology. So let me give you one. I'm not sure if this is the most dangerous, but it's certainly a dangerous one. There are various ways in which Christians broadly are tempted to um, downgrade the holiness and transcendence of God. Uh, I've, 
We live in a culture that wants to feel comfortable with God. Uh, we like the idea that God's just a bit like us. Um, and so there are a whole lot of different movements in theology which have tended to make God more like humans in different ways. Uh, and I think that... So because who we, what we think about God is at the very centre of theology, the very centre of our faith, where we start to get our, our thinking about God wrong, it's going to flow out into everything. Um, yeah, and, and so and I, yeah, so that'd probably be, if I had to pick one, that'd be the, the one, although that actually covers a whole lot of different particular theological issues. Well, thanks for your uh, questions um, and for joining yeah, us. Yeah, uh, good tonight. questions, weren't they? Yeah, they were. Yeah, thank you. Um, this is the first of uh, three online events that we're running, and um, I'd encourage you to join us for the other ones that are coming up as well um, uh, as we look at our convictions surrounding biblical theology uh, in the next one and the value of work in various vocations. Um, we're also inviting you to zoom in on some of our classes um, by popping in either in person or online, and we'll send more information about that uh, in an email a bit later on. Um, we'll be sticking around for a bit, so if you do have um, some more questions uh, either running through your head or about college in particular, um, please feel free to ask them, and um, yeah, John and I will try to answer them uh, as best we can. But um, as we finish up our um, formal time together, John, can I ask you to pray for us? Sure. Well, I've just been talking about how our great God is and how important it is to remember that. So let, let's pray along those lines. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for who you are and we praise you for who you are. We confess that we find it really easy to want to make ourselves bigger and you smaller. Please help us not to do that. Help us to grow in our wonder of you and our awe of you, to worship you more fully, to know that you are the triune God, Father, Son and Spirit, and to call with the angels of heaven, holy, 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 uh, Lord God Almighty, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Father, we pray that you'll help us to be faithful in living for you because we have a great grasp of who you are, or perhaps rather because you have a grasp of us and we rejoice in that. Thanks for the chance to think about questions tonight. Um, we pray that this sort of exercise tonight won't be one of just throwing ideas around, but it will be genuinely one of wanting to seek your truth and to live out uh, on the basis of the way you've revealed yourself. And so we pray for our churches. We pray that you'll help us to be faithful um, as churches to take your gospel uh, to a world that, and to a nation that often isn't ready to hear. And we pray that you'd go ahead of us and work by your spirit to prepare people uh, to turn to Christ. And so, Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.